Good morning. If you will, turn with me to Matthew 6. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 29. Matthew 6, 24 to 29. And as you turn there, let's uh, just have a brief reminder of where we were two weeks ago, where we saw in verses uh, 22 and 23 the idea of the eye, and it represented the heart, and how you can have a good eye or an evil eye, and your eye could emit light or allow light in, or if you had an evil eye, it would allow darkness in, and your whole body would be full of darkness. And even before verses 22 and 23, we have the same concept that Jesus is going to dive into today about treasuring, about seeing, and about serving. All three of those concepts are related. So I don't want us to think that verses 24 through 29 is completely unrelated to where we've already been. In 19 through 24, when Jesus talks about do not lay up treasures for yourself in heaven on earth, he's saying that you must savor that which is eternal. That which is going to last. So if you are savoring or treasuring that which is temporal and that which will not lead out of this life or have existence out of this life, then you won't treasure that which is in heaven, that which is eternal. And so he says, savor, cherish, treasure that which is going to last. And then in 22 and 23, like I've already alluded to, He said, not only do you have to savor that which is eternal, you also need to have one good eye, i.e. your heart must be good. Your heart must see that which is worth savoring and pursue that. And so you say, okay, well, where's the connection then between 22 and 23 and verse 24? Because there we're going to find this morning that Jesus goes into service. How does seeing and savoring have a connection with service? Well, in Proverbs chapter 18, we find this connection or this, this phrase. And it gives us this idea of where this connection from 22, 23 and 24 comes from. Proverbs 28, not 18, excuse me. Verse 22 of Proverbs 28, we hear this statement. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. You're hearing that. You're like, I don't don't see the connection there. Well, in the Hebrew, that word for stingy man is actually a man with an evil eye. So the Proverbs is saying a person who has an evil eye hastens after wealth. They make their life about accumulating wealth because of all the things that wealth can get them. That's the focus of their life. That person is said to have an evil eye. So now, coming back to verses 22 and 23, again, he said, either your eye is evil or your eye is good. And so if you have an evil eye... Most likely, 
you're going to set your life on material possessions. Your life is going to be about acquiring things. And this is why Jesus goes right into verse 24. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see that connection? What you savor, what you see as valuable and important, that is what you are going to serve. And so that is where we're at today. And as he launches from verse 24, He's going to go into what kind of master money or possessions is in comparison to the kind of master that God is. And what we're going to find is that money is a master that leads its servants into an anxious life, into a life filled with anxiety. If we were to define anxiety, Webster says is this, an emotion which is characterized by an unpleasant state of inner turmoil and includes feelings of dread over anticipated events. It's an emotion. But that emotion impacts every aspect of who you are. Anxiety takes control of your life and leads you astray in so many areas. Listen to these statistics from Single Care, a website that did a survey back in 2020 and 2021. They said 62% of Americans experience anxiety. So over half of all of Americans. 47% of Americans experience anxiety on a regular basis. The most common type of anxiety is what they call generalized anxiety. So there's not one specific thing that a person is anxious about. They're just anxious in general. It can be this. It can be that. They're just in a constant state of anxiety. Here's a phone. Millennials, ages 26 to 41, which is a good number of us in this room this morning, myself included, are the most anxious generation there is right now. Millennials are the most anxious generation. And they also found in this survey that stress at home is the primary cause of anxiety. So when things aren't going right at home, that leads to the most vivid expressions or the most common occurrence of anxiety. And then finally, they said this. Sleep, relationships, and physical health are most affected by anxiety. It affects your sleep. It affects your health. It affects your relationships. What this survey did not say was that there is good to worry. There is just amount of, a, a small amount of worry that's good for us. They did not conclude that worry has any positive impact on us as humans. But yet, 62% of all Americans worry. 47% on a regular basis. 
here's been some few things said about worry that I think will help us as we dive into this topic to see it rightly. It's been said that worry gives a small thing a big shadow. Worry is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. Worry is a guest, admit it, which quickly turns to be a master. Worry never robs tomorrow of sorrow, but only saps today of strength. And here's this Jewish proverb that I find just hilarious. Worry is like this. Worms eat what you dread. Worries eat you when you're alive. Let me restate that. Worries eat you when you're dead. Worms eat you when you're dead. I messed it up. <laughs> From the top. <laughs> Worms eat you when you're dead. But worries eat you when you're alive. But the medical professionals, they don't want to leave those who read their articles and follow their statistics without some kind of coping mechanism. So WebMD gives us tips not to not have worry in our lives, not to not be anxious, but this is how they offer us to live with anxiety. Hey, you're going to be anxious, that's fine. But here's how you should live with it, says WebMD. One, move your body, i.e. stay active. Two, pay attention to sleep. Three, ease up on caffeine and alcohol. I didn't get any claps on that one. They're like, I can't give up my coffee, right? I need that. They also say, schedule worry time. I'm not making this up. Schedule time that you can set aside and dedicate to worrying. How helpful is that going to be? Breathe deep. Be the boss of your thoughts. Tame tense muscles. Relax. Help out in your community. And finally, they say, if you want to live successfully with anxiety, you need to look for triggers. So if you do all of those nine things, you should be able to live a life with anxiety that's still a good life. But what's interesting in our passage this week and next week, our Lord, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's spoken on so many topics, so many topics that are still applicable to this very day. So here we find ourselves with our Lord, Jesus Christ, speaking on anxiety and worry. And what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is Jesus gives us nine reasons or nine arguments as to why we should not worry. Not that we should live with anxiety, live with worry, and find a way just to cope with it, but why we shouldn't worry to begin with. So that's what we're going to do this week and next week. We're going to canvas and dive into these passages, listening intently for how, as Christians, we are to deal with worry. How are we to overcome worry and be free of it? Let's read verses 24 and 29. <clears throat> no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And of which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you, for you are God. We are here this morning to exalt your holy name. We are here this morning to hear from your word, to have your will communicated to your people, that we may walk in joyful obedience. We're thankful, Lord, that you have spoken to every area of human life. Because you love us and you care for us. So help us not live an anxious life. Help us as believers not be worried, not dread, not be in fear. But help us trust you. Help us know more about who you are and live in light of that. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the first thing we see in verse 24 is that there's a relationship between affections, allegiance, and anxiety. Because he says no one can serve two masters. And before we continue, we have to understand what it meant in the first century, the ancient world, to be a servant, to be a slave. And primarily carried these two ideas, or these two realities. First, a slave in the ancient world was not even considered a person. A slave was considered a thing. And so therefore, this slave who was considered a thing had no rights of his own or her own. The master had the right to do with the slave as he pleased. The master could beat the slave, could kill the slave even if the master chose. And there will be no, no, no consequence for that master. The master could also possess the slave as if, as if he possessed any of his other material possessions. The slave was not even considered a person. The second thing we have to understand about servants or slaves in the ancient world was that a slave had no time that was his own. There was not a period of time allotted to the servant, the slave, that he could say, I serve you 23 hours and 30 minutes a day, but for these 30 minutes, they're mine. I'm going to take these 30 minutes and do whatever I want. He had no time. That was his own. And so the slave had full allegiance to his master. And the reason that's important 
when we hear Jesus say no one can serve two masters, we think of employees. I, I can have two jobs. I can work for you and I can work for you. I can make it happen. But that's not the point. That's not the, the crux of what's being said here. No slave can have two masters. By definition, it's impossible for a slave to be 100% owned by two masters. It can't happen. And so Jesus starts off by saying no slave can have two masters. But look at the reasons he gives us for this. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. <laughs> when I read those reasons, it kind of caught me off guard. Because understanding slavery in the ancient world, I thought, why would a slave ever love his master? Why would a slave ever be devoted to his master? You are the one keeping me in bondage. But when I thought about it more and I thought about it in light of the gospel, then I understood what Jesus was saying. You see, the gospel is an offer out of slavery into freedom. The gospel is also an offer into the freedom of being a slave to God. And you see, by nature, humans, you and I, we are born into this world as slaves to the world Slaves to our flesh. And not only are we slaves, we love our masters. We love the world into which we're born because it provides the environment that we can express our fleshly desires. We love the world because it becomes the play playground by which I can give all my sinful appetites their full goal. And so we love our master. So by nature, if that's true then, if what Jesus is saying is true, then when we come into this world loving the world, loving it as master, being devoted to it, that means conversely that we hate by nature the one true master. So those who are not Christians, those who have not come to Christ, it's not as if they are like, I don't really have a problem with God. I just don't know if he is worth following. Even if they can't communicate it, at the recesses of their heart, it's I don't love him. I do not want to serve him because if I do, I must give up my allegiance and my affections to the master that I love. This is what he's saying. John Calvin said it this way, where riches hold dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. So if your, your loyalty and your love is not for God, then it's going to be for something else. Maybe it's not riches. Maybe it's not your possessions. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe your life is about going whatever way you want to go, doing whatever it is you see fit to be done. I love this, this quote from Paul Washer. It, it, makes me, it makes me chuckle every single time. 
he was talking to this woman, and this woman had a to her a pagan, unbelieving brother. And she said, Man, my brother, he hates God. He verbalized how he hates God, and he doesn't care about what the Bible says. He doesn't care about what God wants him to do. He just hates God. But me, man, I don't have a problem with God. And Paul Washer asked her, do you serve God? Do you seek his will in your life in every single area of your life? She said, no. But I'm not like my brother. I don't curse God. Paul said, actually, if I'm being honest with you, ma'am, I've got more respect for your brother than I do for you. And as you can imagine, she was appalled by that statement. He said, listen, your brother is being consistent with his worldview. He's being consistent with the master that he serves. He doesn't want to serve God. He makes that abundantly plain and clear. And that's why he doesn't seek the will of God. You, on the other hand, you say that you know God, but your life is not characterized by serving him, by seeking his will. So if God is God, if God is master, why don't you serve him? Why don't you seek his will in your life? There's another thing we have to understand about two masters. Not only is it about allegiance and affections, it's also about the fact that masters, especially as it pertains to God and whatever else, have diametrically opposed orders. Listen to this. The one commands you to walk by faith. The other to walk by sight. The one to set your affections on things above. The other to set your affections on things on the earth. The one to look at things unseen and eternal. The other to look at things that are seen and temporal. The one to have your conversation and your treasures and your hope in heaven. The other for you to have your conversations and your hopes on earth. Everything that God calls us to as Christians, as our master, is the exact opposite of what the world and possessions call us to. God says, give me your heart. World, money, possessions, and no, give it to me. God says, do not fret, do not worry, do not be afraid. The world and money and possessions says, you must. You must worry about where every single bite of food is going to come from. You must worry about your next breath. And so you see the orders between these two masters are complete opposite. So how could we serve them both? To be clear, though, Jesus isn't saying that God is against us having possessions. God is not against you owning stuff. God is against stuff owning you, though. That's the problem. Think about the rich young ruler later on in Matthew when Jesus speaks to him and they have this conversation. How does it go? Jesus said to him, if you will be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Who was the young ruler's master? It was his possessions. So much so that he's standing in front of God in the flesh, God incarnate, who offers to him life everlasting. Come, follow me. You will have treasures in heaven. The rich young ruler sized it up. Treasures in heaven? I've got treasures on earth. My heart is with these treasures. And if I give up all of these treasures, I'm not sure it'll be worth it. He was possessed by his possessions. So this is what Jesus is driving us away from this morning. And then in 25 through 27, he's going to highlight that materialism and anxiety reveals to us that we actually have no clue about life. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So when he says, therefore, in other words, what he's saying is, for this reason, in light of the fact that you cannot serve God in money, you cannot serve God in possessions, you cannot serve God and fill in the blank, don't be divided, don't let your thoughts be divided between the two. Don't let money, possessions, dominate your thought life. Don't be anxious about your life. Because if you're a servant of God, as we'll see this week and next week, he will take care of you. You don't have to worry about that. There's bigger things on your plate. There's bigger things on your agenda. Don't be anxious about life. Don't be anxious about clothing. Now consider this though. Jesus is speaking about the necessities, right? The basic necessities of life. He's talking about water. He's talking about food. He's talking about clothing. So from a rational perspective, it would seem like we ought to be worried about those things. If we don't have those things, then what are we going to do? How am I going to continue to live if I don't focus on that which I need to live? Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God created life? That the life that we have is from God? If you believe that, then you must also believe that the life that God gives as a gift, he will also sustain. Would it make sense for God to say, I want them to have life. I want them to live. I want them to know me and have a relationship with me. But you know what? I'm going to let them figure out how to stay alive. I'm going to let them grovel around day after day and figure out just how they can keep from dying. If that was the case, then life would be about food and drink. 
But life is more than that. So the materialist is one who lives a less than life. The one who is focused on materials is one who has said the sum total of my life is about things. And that's why they pursue it with everything that they have. And so now what we're getting into are some of the major existential questions of life itself. One question that we can find an answer to. Where did I come from? If I came from God, if he is the one who has given me life, then now I understand a little bit more about why life is important. What is the purpose of life? Is life about the acquiring of things? Is life about pursuing material possessions? Or is it more? Jesus is making an argument here that life is about more than the accumulating of things. Life is about relationship with God. If life is about that, then you have not to worry about sustaining of life. What about who am I? That speaks to identity, about value. The person who does not serve God has devalued themselves. Because now I have to try to find my identity, my purpose in life, and something else. I don't connect my life to God, so I have to connect it to something else. And most often than not, it's material things. And so he says, life is more than that. Now, it's possible for us to, this morning to sit here as Christians and say, you know what? I don't worry. I have, I have no idea what this means. Well, if that was the case, why would Jesus command his disciples, do not worry. Stop worrying. It's in the present tense. So there was Christians, disciples of Jesus, that he's speaking to who were worrying. He tells them to stop. And the reason that's important is, is twofold. One, it actually blosters our testimony, our witness for Christ, when we can, like the unbeliever, acknowledge that, yeah, I do worry. And when worry des desire desires to take over me, I have a different answer than you, though. Let me tell you how I deal with worry. It's not that, oh, man, I have no idea what you're talking about. I never worry. Is that when worry crops up in my heart, I combat it with truth. I combat it with the reality that I'm loved and valued by God. If an unbeliever hears that, they'll ask more questions. This morning, we have believers amongst us who have been faced with physical ailments that threaten their life. Cancer. All these other things. And as they suffer, as they experience these things, it provides an opportunity for the witness of theirs to go forth. They could come alongside somebody else and say, are you worried? I know where you're at. Let me tell you about my God. The second part of, of this Christian worrying is it, it hurts our testimony, though. 
if our life as a Christian, as one who says, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that God loves me and that he did not spare his one and only son, but gave him up for me and that he won't withhold any good from me. If I believe all of those things and I verbalize all of those things, but my life is characterized by worry, then it absolutely hurts my witness. Because if I'm an unbeliever and I'm watching you, there is no difference. Your life is marked by the same things my life is marked by. Worry after worry after worry. Anxiety after anxiety after anxiety. Why would I want to know more about this God? How has he affected you? How has he changed you? How is your life different because you serve God? Another thing for us to consider as we contemplate why a Christian should not worry. He makes his argument from greater to lesser. Is life not more than? We can make that same argument as it applies to our salvation. If God has saved you, if God has brought you from eternal death into eternal life, why do you think that he won't sustain you in this life? God cared enough to send his son into this world to live, to die on your behalf. So that you can enjoy him forever. Why would he allow you to perish? Why would he allow you to not have the basic necessities of life? You see, when we worry, we discount the love and care of God. He may love me enough to save me, but he don't love me enough to give me what I need today. I got to go out on my own and make it happen. Worry for the Christian is unwarranted. Now look at verse 26. He's going to give us another reason. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That word there, look. He says, open your eyes. Turn your eyes on the reality of the birds that you see flying by. We could just picture as Jesus is speaking, there's flocks of birds flying in the air. He says, look at the birds. They don't say, how are we going to survive today? They don't say, hey, you reap, I'm going to sow, and we're going to build barns so that we can put everything that we harvest into them in case we need it for a drought. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. So he's given us this example, this illustration of how God cares for his lesser creation, his lesser creatures. And so if you and I are children of God, not just his creatures, but also his children, will he not care for us? Will he not provide for us? Said the raven to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these ancient human be anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be 
that they have no Heavenly Father, such as cares for you and me. So it's really an indictment against humanity. It's an indictment against us as his children. He says, look at the birds. They don't fret, they don't worry, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. And I was thinking about my own children. My daughter, she's six, almost six. And my youngest, unborn. And not one time have I noticed any of them sitting around worrying. <laughs> I never walked in on them in their rooms, in a, in a circle, in a huddle, just worried. I never heard them say, man, is our father going to take care of us today? Is our father going to provide what we need to live today? Not one time. So there's lessons for us to learn from the birds of the air and even from little children. Okay, Jesus says, look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns. So really what I'm gathering from that statement is, I don't have to work. All I've got to do is open my mouth to the skies and wait for worms and manna to drop down. That's how you can really tell Christians from unbelievers, right? The Christians just walk around, mouth open, towards the sky, and God just drops the food right there into their mouths. That's not what he's saying. This isn't a call to stop working. It's a call to stop worrying. God uses means, of course, so we work and we labor. But he's, we're not to worry about if we're going to have enough for each and every day. So he says, look at the birds. And then in verse 27, he asks another question. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Some translations say a cubit to his stature. Or which of you can add a foot and a half to his height? Now that's a possible translation of what the Greek is really saying. But unless you're an athlete, unless you're a young individual who's hoping to be an athlete, most likely you don't worry about getting taller. What you do worry about is how can I live a longer life? And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, Elder Josh highlighted all the crazy things that we're doing today to try to stay alive, to try to increase the span of our lives. And that becomes the dominating thought of those who worry. And so Jesus is saying here, worry is not only unnecessary. Worry is not only unwarranted. Worry is also unproductive. You can worry and be anxious all you want. But it's not going to increase your life. And in fact, you've heard the statement, he worried himself to death. But have you ever heard somebody say he worried himself to a longer life? <laughs> you sit down with somebody in their 90s and you ask them, how did you live so long? You know what? I was just worried day after day. I just worried about every single thing that came up. And that's why I'm sitting here before you today at 90-something years old. Says no one ever. So Jesus says, 
you have no control over your life. Worry does not benefit you in any single way. And in fact, we find that that reality highlighted in the Old Testament. Job 14 verse 5. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Psalm 139.16 Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once after that comes judgment. So a lot of worry that we see today is about a desire to expand my life. And Jesus says, you can't do it. God has already determined how long you're going to live. So just enjoy, as a servant of God, the life that God has appointed to you. And don't worry about trying to expand it. Don't let that trouble you. Why does the unbeliever worry about expanding their life? I think a part of it is because in Ecclesiastes... We find in chapter 3, verse 11, it says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. So every single being, human being, at some point in their life, contemplates what is going to happen to me when I die. Is this truly what life is all about? Am I here for these 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe 90 years, and then I die? It just doesn't seem like it makes sense. And so what I'm going to do is try to expand my life. They can't do it. All the pills, all the exercise, all the push-ups, all the bench press. It's not unnecessary to work out, but it's not going to expand their life. So Jesus says, don't worry about expanding your life. And then in verses 28 and 29, Jesus is going to make this final point for us this morning. That the covering that God provides is incomparable. The covering that God provides is incomparable. He says in verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So when Jesus says here, consider the lilies of the field, in Palestine, there was this beautiful array of wild flowers all over the place. And so when Jesus said, consider the lilies, he said, look. First I told you to look up at the birds. Now I'm telling you to look down at the flowers. And you might think, why does he make this comparison with Solomon? Surely Solomon in all his glory was arrayed better than flowers. He's not using hyperbole here. The truth is, if you take a wildflower, put it under a microscope, you'll see the beauty of it. You see all the color, all the beautiful design. 
that God put into it. If you take the greatest robe that you can find, Solomon's or a $2,000 suit, put it under a microscope, and what you will find is sackcloth. Pure sackcloth. Nothing special. So Jesus says here, look at the lilies. Look at the wildflowers. They don't even live long. They're here today and then they're gone. You have a little kid come up and pick a flower and you know soon afterwards it's going to die. You get flowers for your wife. You put it in water. Ticking time bomb, right? In a few days, those flowers are dead. But that being so, God clothes the flowers with so much care, so much intricate detail. So if the flowers are not going to last beyond a few days, a few moments, and you are, why do you think God won't care for you? Why don't you think that God won't provide what you need? And so you know I love apologetics. I love taking any opportunity I can to speak to some of the crazy things people like to believe and say the word of God affirms it. Some religions hold to soul annihilation. If you know what that means, it's the belief that once we die, that's it. Our souls are annihilated. We cease to exist. And it seems on the surface like that position is a caring, loving position. That instead of God punishing someone forever in hell, he's going to offer them mercy enough to just cause them to cease to exist. But the truth is, that's the opposite. That's backwards. You see, here the flowers cease to exist. They have less value than humanity. And so even as God, and this may seem strange to your ear, punishes people in hell, he is, in a sense, upholding their value. That they came into this world not to just cease to exist at some future point, but that their life has significance beyond just this life. And so hell is even a testament that your life has value. What you do here matters. You will not cease to exist. He compares the lilies of the field to Solomon. Solomon who had all the wealth and all the riches. Solomon who the queen of Sheba traveled across the world to see all that he had. Solomon who showed her his kingdom. And when she saw and heard the wisdom of Solomon, the queen of Sheba said, you know what? I heard about your wisdom. I heard about your glory. But the reality is that half of it was not even told to me. God said, even Solomon is not arrayed like one of these flowers. So Jesus, in this passage, gives us a number of reasons not to worry. He says life is about more than food and clothing. We are of more value to God than other creatures. He says that worry is unproductive. And he says that we can't care for ourselves like God can. And so, Christian, why are you worried? Is there a reason that you could give that'll satisfy that answer. And if you have not 
come to Christ, if you have not turned away from worshiping and serving lesser masters, then briefly let me plead with you to come to Christ. Because you see, the greatest covering that God provided is not our clothes. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the righteousness for which Christ died that it could be ours. And the one who turns away from sin, who renounces and denounces the master of possessions, the master of self, and comes to Christ, will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and cared for by God himself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus is a great shepherd. That this could have been an easy passage where Jesus just said, stop worrying. It's a sin for you to worry. And left it at that. But he gives us reasons. He shepherds our hearts to understand why as children of God, we ought not worry. And so with the, the person who wrote this poem, help us agree. The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Amen.